Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, Valley 101 listeners. It's producer Amanda Luberto. Part of what Valley 101 aims to do is to answer your questions about Metro Phoenix. Whether you've lived here your whole life or you're new to our city, our podcast hopes to give you a better understanding of why Arizona is the way that it is and the history that got us here. And for many of you, you may be new to the Valley. After all, it's no secret that Maricopa County is growing and growing. In fact, the Census Bureau reported that the county added over 58,000 new residents from July 2020 to July 2021. Because of this, it is now the fastest growing county in the nation. And even outside of Maricopa County, the whole state of Arizona has seen immense expansion. In that year, the census showed us that over 98,000 people moved to Arizona and less than a thousand of them came from what is referred to as natural change, which just means deaths and births. The rest of them moved from other states. So, welcome to the Valley if you're new here. In order to give you a sense of what we're about and make you more familiar with Phoenix, today we are rerunning an episode from 2019. In this episode, intern at the time Dylan Samard will answer four questions about Phoenix history in a lightning round style. Enjoy. I think that Arizonans have a particular appreciation for the fact that what is here today was not always here, especially in a city as young as Phoenix. But before Arizona became a state, before it was even part of the United States, what was the land upon which Arizona now resides like? One curious reader asked precisely this. What state in Mexico was Arizona before the United States government acquired the land in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. To find out more, I knew I'd need to speak to an archaeologist. And if I couldn't find one in the field, I'd have to go to their other favorite place, museums. My name is Leon Natker. I am the executive director of the Mesa Historical Museum. Leon is an expert archaeologist especially where material culture, such as pottery and paintings, are concerned. He is especially knowledgeable in the early 19th century, which is when Arizona became American territory. What state in Mexico was Arizona before the American government got the land in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo? Okay, um, what is now Arizona uh, was actually in two States Up to the Gila River, it was part of Sonora, and we still border on Sonora State um, at the, our southern border in Arizona. But north of the Gila River, it was an area that the Mexicans called Apacheria. So it was the Apache land, and it was considered dangerous and someplace that people did not want to go to. And farther north, up above the Little Colorado, that was the land of the Moki, which we know of as the Hopi. What was the valley like in 1810 when the Mexican War of Independence began? 
Well, the valley was mostly, uh, it was sparsely populated. Uh, mostly it would have been Pima, Maricopa, and Yavapai uh, tribe groups. And um, they were, it was a fairly, uh, you know, innocuous agricultural uh, land at that point. The canals, of course, of the Hohokam had all silted up by then. Nobody was using the canals. Um, and as far as it actually being Apache land, that was kind of a, a, a misnomer on the part of the uh, Mexican government. Um, there were, of course, the Chiricahua Apache are down near Tucson and still are. And then you have the San Carlos and White Mountain Apache groups, which are farther north, up above Globe. Uh, but right here in the uh, Rio Salado, there really weren't any. <laughs> so that was, it was just like, oh, that's, you know, you go across the Gila River, that's scary. We don't want to go there. So it was very, very underpopulated, actually, compared to what it had been, you know, during the Hohokam time. For For the sparse Spanish settlement that there was, what was life like for the people who were living there? Uh, this would have been a very tough life at that time because it wasn't until the late 19th century with American settlers that the canals were reopened and agriculture really started in a major way. So this would have been what we would, I think you would call it a hard scrabble life. You could have ranched uh, cattle. Uh, there was enough grazing, you know, depending on where you were in Arizona. Certainly, if you get up into the Verde Valley, there's, you know, that would have been much, much better for you than down here at the Rio Salado. But it would have been a very lonely and a very tough life because this was really kind of the no man's land. The, the real rich life was way to the west in California or over east at the Rio Grande. So here in Arizona was kind of, you were in the middle of... To, you know, to coin the phrase, it, it's, this was the middle of nowhere. There were a few Indian tribes, uh, but very little activity as far as European settlers were concerned. It was all, it was all around us. Uh, again, farther north, up in Utah, there was uh, more settlement, uh, and um, up in Colorado. But right, right here in the, you know, from like what we would call the Flagstaff area, all the way, you know, down to here, down to the Phoenix area. This was not very settled by Europeans at all until really after the Mexican Wars. To make a life here was to do it in total vacuum. At best, you were surrounded on all sides by vacant deserts stretching past the horizon. Your only contact with other people would be your immediate family and Native Americans who were justifiably mistrustful of their new neighbors. Have you ever wondered why Camelback Mountain is called Camelback Mountain? Probably not. It looks like a camel's back after all. But if you've ever wondered who named the mountain, you wouldn't be alone. One reader poised the question, who named Camelback Mountain? And while everyone knows why the monolith was named the way it was, seemingly no one knows who named it. Even under intense professional scrutiny, the identity of whomever named the mountain seems lost to time.
Okay, my name is George Hartz. I've been uh, involved in a lot of history organizations and things. For my, my wife and I co-wrote uh, two books on history in this part of Arizona. I spent uh, six years on the state board of the Arizona Historical Society and 10 years on the board of the Central, chap Central Arizona chapter of the Arizona Historical Society, including a couple years as president. George came recommended from the Phoenix Parks and Rec Department who implied when asked that they didn't know who named Camelback Mountain. He has been researching the local geography for decades and knew just where to look. He was able to find a clue on the site of the U.S. Board of Geographic Names. Uh, on the website, there was a link to the actual card that was submitted when this organization decided what the official name of the mountain should be. And uh, the card indicated that it was submitted on June 21st, 1939, by a Professor G.E.P. Smith from the Arizona Agriculture Experiment Station. And I don't know if he was submitted because he was personally curious or was somehow affiliated officially with somebody in the state who wanted to, to get the name established, but he started the process back in 1939. And I discovered from the card that it was concluded on April 29th, 1941, when the uh, uh, U.S. Board on Geographic Names officially named it Camelback Mountain. The card was interesting because it, it indicated that during the first part of the 20th century, the mountain had three different names that were in use, and that initially uh, the first uh, reference to it was from 1906, and a USGS uh, quadrant map that included that part of the state. And it was listed as camel's back, one word but with a plural, uh, camels. Uh, place names don't ever use apostrophes, so whether it meant camel apostrophe back or just camel's back in, in plural, who knows. Uh, but that was the first reference to it in any official government document from 1906. One of the other two names George is referring to is Camelback, two words, not one, in 1910 by the U.S. Reclamation Service. The other is how we refer to it today, Camelback. So, do you think I'm missing anything? No, I think there's not, there's not a whole, it isn't a complicated story, uh, Camelback. Uh, you know, we, it, would be, it would be great if it had something to do with the camels that were roaming the desert during that time, but it, it, it didn't. There weren't that many camels and they weren't roaming the desert in the, in the 1870s and 80s uh, to any great extent. Let's pull on that thread. Did you say that there were camels in Arizona? Yeah, the Army, uh, in the 1850s, the Army began the process of experimenting with camels as beasts of burden. In the, in the desert southwest. Uh, they had been mu using mules, and mules require a lot more water than camels, so uh, uh, the idea came to uh, import some camels and see how they worked out, and they were used quite a bit up to the start of the Civil War in various uh, army pack trains and things like that. So there you have it. We weren't able to find who first named Camelback Mountain, but we were able to find camels, more or less.
And now, our journey through Arizona's history brings us to the mid-1900s, with two questions on some of Phoenix's most iconic landmarks. And just how did they get there? We spoke with Michelle Dodds, Phoenix's historic preservation officer. What would you say is the most iconic building in the Phoenix skyline? Well, I'd have to go with Hotel Westward Ho. I think it has a really unique silhouette that's unusual and stands out from any other uh, buildings in the downtown area. Unique silhouette is putting it mildly. The iconic building is located at the intersection of Fillmore Street and Central Avenue, and it's crowned with a bright red antenna taller than the main structure itself. To many, it's an architectural tribute to a time only a few living Americans have seen. A time when bringing television to homes around the country justified building a nearly 300-foot antenna atop the most desirable hotel in the state. The antenna is often confused with that shown in the first scene of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. While Psycho does use the Phoenix skyline, the antenna shown was actually mounted atop the nearby Herd building, Phoenix's first skyscraper at eight stories, and former home of the Arizona Republic. The Herd building antenna is long gone, but it just goes to show how much radio meant in the early to mid 20th century. Um, can we go into the history a bit of the Westward Ho building? Sure. It was constructed in uh, 1928. It was designed by the L.A. architectural firm of Fisher Lake and Traver. And it's the Spanish colonial revival style. Um, at the time it was constructed, it was the second tallest building west of the Mississippi. Uh, the tallest building being uh, in California. And it was the first in the city to um, use refrigeration instead of evaporative cooling for a multi-story building. You know, you can't miss the tower. The tower was added in 1949, and it's uh, about 240 feet in height. And the building itself is, you know, about 200 uh, feet tall. And then the antennas, if you count that in, that's another 40 feet. So it makes it a very tall building. It was the first uh, luxury hotel really built in Phoenix and it was really designed to attract you know business people and vacationers who wanted to spend time here For our final question, Michelle Dodds walks us through the history of one of Phoenix's most baffling roadways. Phoenicians take pride in having a well-planned city of parallel and perpendicular streets and roads, but one quick glance at a map reveals a striking exception. Of course, I'm talking about Grand Avenue. What's sort of the history for that design choice, having it go diagonal as opposed to vertical and horizontal like most of the other roads in Phoenix? Well, so in the 1880s when, uh, you know, Phoenix was just an original town site and, and there was a, that whole road was really an old wagon road that went to Wickenburg and people would go there to where their mines were located, like the Vulture Mine. And so it was a dirt road initially at a diagonal to go from the 
original town site out to Wickenburg, but uh, later on it was developed that the um, Arizona Improvement Company that was kind of founded by W.J. Murphy, uh, you know, the road starts at what we call Five Points where Van Buren and 7th Avenue intersect with Grand Avenue, and uh, that improvement was completed in 1888. Uh, 18 miles were completed. You know, there was a um, streetcar um, added initially. It was mule uh, drawn in 1890 and then later on electrified in 1909. Uh, but as and the fairgrounds came to be at the site, it was moved to the site at McDowell and 19th Avenue, and so people used to actually uh, take the, the streetcar to go to the fair. But as fewer people um, rode the streetcar, it eventually shut down in 1934 at that location. And so, you know, the road transitioned over time uh, to, as people would come in from Los Angeles, they would enter the city uh, through Grand Avenue, and there were, initially it started out, lots of tourist camps. People would come in there and go to locations with services. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Valley 101. If you have any questions about Metro Phoenix, like the ones we just listened to, please submit them to our podcast by visiting valley101.azcentral.com. If you're a fan of the show, please share it with a friend and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support it by subscribing to azcentral.com. You can follow all AZ Central podcasts like Valley 101, The Gaggle, and The Lab on Twitter at AZC Podcasts. I'm producer Amanda Luberto. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week with a normally scheduled episode. We'll see you then.